So I, I think that this is kind of a testimony of success in some way, is that uh, upon looking at the feedback we've gotten for a lot of this stuff for this tournament in particular, and also for our rules for next year, which a lot of that's incorporated into, um, we had people complaining about everything. They would praise something and complain about something else. Almost everybody. Everyone has their own opinions, you know. But there are some people who are super for some things that other people were just like, I'm quitting the sport over this thing. Every single little change there was, you know, about half the people loved it, half the people did. That is kind of the goal. Obviously, we want more people to like stuff than not. Yeah, that feels like a little bit of uh, an allegory for life sort of thing there. It's like, if you're making everybody happy, you're probably not doing the right thing. As long as you've got a little bit on both sides, you're probably okay. It's kind of like a yin and yang type of thing. You know, you need a little bit of stuff to go wrong. You need a little bit of stuff to go right, but, you know, maintain the balance. All right, Evan Walters, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you explain to everybody a little bit about your history and what you do at the World Knife Throwing League and the World Axe Throwing League? Yeah, so my history, my background is in kind of like marketing, graphic design primarily. So I worked for uh, some Fortune 500s doing that sort of stuff um, and kind of in my off time doing kind of social media stuff for fun um, and then it kind of developed into... Um, where I am now with the World Axe Throwing League and the World Knife Throwing League. Um, and for the World Knife... So I have two titles. They're sister companies, so we do a lot of work for both. Um, but my my titles at the moment is I am the commissioner for the World Knife Throwing League and the director of operations for the World Axe Throwing League. Um, and both of them are fairly similar roles, um, although I do a lot more... Uh, a lot more heavy lifting with the knife throwing league than the axe throwing league currently. So, so for those that don't know, I'm wearing my my Waddle merch right now. We worked together for sort of the better part of three years mm-hmm. and watched the sport evolve a fair bit. Was there a moment for you when you sort of thought, "Oh, this is this is a thing now"? Yeah, um, it was. It was the first ESPN broadcast that we did. Um, I remember, I mean, we weren't even, it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny I say that because looking back, it still wasn't even much of anything at the time, but I guess that was just kind of the moment where I was like, oh, this is going to be something, you know? Um, but we had only been around for like a year and a half or so, uh, pushing two years and, um, we got signed on with the SPN and we cobbled together a world championship as quickly as we could, um, to the best of our ability. Um, which surprisingly did very well com- in comparison to what we're working with. <laughs> um, and we were on ESPN. We had our, um, you know, on ESPN2. And uh, the fact that I was, like, sitting in front of the camera and I was thinking to myself, I was like, this is going to go out, and a few hundred thousand people are going to see this. Uh, and it, you know, obviously you get, the, like, the butterflies and stuff. But I was thinking about that. I was like, this is really where... This is the moment where we're really going to make this thing work. So Yeah, it's uh, definitely come a long way from you deciding you were going to go next door and throw some axes and pick up a part-time job to commentating on ESPN. Yeah, it was... Um, I mean, that's literally just like you said. I was working for the USA Today at the time, and I saw an axe-throwing place opened up um, just a few doors down. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go check that out. That sounds like it'll be fun. Uh, why not? And then they, uh, they had a part-time job opening and I, uh, was reading, you know, what the benefits were and stuff. And I was like, wow, they get pretty much paid more than I get in overtime. 
so I might as well just work evenings and weekends because that sounds like a fun thing to do. I'll be there anyway. And uh, yeah, le about less than a year later, I was announced as the commissioner for the World Axling League. So <laughs> a quick rise to the top. Yeah, um, just happened to be at the right place at the right time, really. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How has uh, how's some of the competition been since I left? I think it uh, looks like things have changed a fair bit, and there's some new yeah. faces at the top there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's I mean, it's it's one of those things. Uh, I mean, you've been to a few of these tournaments, but for the folks listening at home, it's almost, uh, you know, the competition evolves every year slightly, um, but every year there's a new champion. There's, there's the only folks who have been able to, like, retain any sort of title is for one of our... It's for one of the axe-throwing league's um, disciplines, which is called duels, where a team of two people will throw simultaneously their target. And I think the winners of that have won every year that duels has had a world championship. So it's been three years in a row, and that's the only consecutive win that anybody's had in for world championships. Um, so, But the competition is evolving very quickly, especially this year. Um we have a whole plethora of new, essentially, games um, that we're going to be doing. Because we don't want... Our, we, we had our two major ESPN events every year. Uh, and that is essentially the same tournament. Just one has a world championship title and the other one doesn't. So we wanted to change that up. So this year we have, instead of the US Open, we're done with that. And we have the Pro-Am tournament coming. And that is going to not be a a normal tournament. There's going to be a lot of different games, a lot of different disciplines, some experimental stuff. Um, it's going to really test a lot of the abilities of the throwers to stuff that they are not uh, accustomed to. <laughs> Obviously, there's the the fun aspect of having it on ESPN and having something different to broadcast, but how do you think the the throwers sort of see it and maybe appreciate it as something different to come in and it's not just the same because I know even when I was there, I know I was responsible for some changes and then everybody was very up in arms for various reasons and <laughs> this is, there's too much skill, there's not enough skill, everybody is just this, like, so how how do you think the players are seeing that from a new form of entertainment perspective. So I, I think that this is kind of a testimony of success in some way, is that uh, upon looking at the feedback we've gotten for a lot of this stuff for this tournament in particular, and also for our rules for next year, which a lot of that's incorporated into, um, we had people complaining about everything. <laughs> so, Which does not sound typically like something you want to be like, oh yeah, this is a great success, everyone's complaining. Um, but it was funny because they would complain, they would praise something and complain about something else. Almost everybody did. Everyone has their own, own opinions, you know, it totally makes sense. There are some things you like, some things you don't, but it was like that for everything. There are some people who were super for some things that other people were just like, I'm quitting the sport over this thing and vice versa. And it just, you know, for every single little change, there was, you know, about half the people loved it, half the people didn't. So, and honestly, I think that that's kind of when we're trying to develop the sport and stuff, we're, that is kind of the goal. Obviously, we want more people to like stuff than not, but if we can find that happy medium and, you know, 
also if people just give it a chance, because that's usually the other thing, is they <laughs> they just read this stuff and uh, haven't tried it yet and then complain. But once they actually try it, typically, you know, most people's worries are abated at that point. <laughs> yeah, that feels like a little bit of uh, an allegory for life sort of thing there. It's like if you're... If you're making everybody happy, you're probably not doing the right thing. And uh, as long as you've got a little bit on both sides, you're probably okay. Exactly. You know, it, um, it's kind of like a yin and yang type of thing. You know, you need a little bit of stuff to go wrong. You need a little bit of stuff to go right. But, you know, maintain the balance. I think moving into a little bit more of the community side of things, every sort of hobby has their community. You're a part of a handful of them. The throwing community seems to be quite tight-knit at this point, but you and I know that that wasn't necessarily always the case. I, okay. I know there was and probably is still a little bit of internal competition between some organizations, but what do you think has sort of helped heal some of those wounds that maybe existed at the start of the birth of the sport? I think um, a lot of that uh, was really people just trying things out. Um, and experiencing it th for themselves on, you know, on all sides. Um, there's one thing I've pretty much always talked about um, when I was the commissioner of the World Axe Throwing League and now as the commissioner of the World Knife Throwing League, I always talk about is like, I don't care what league you're throwing in. I don't care what organization you're throwing in. As long as you're throwing, then we're let's throw, you know, let's have fun. Um and, you know, that's not just like a PR pitch type of thing to try to keep the peace. It's it's legitimately. I want people just to throw fun stuff. It's, you know, if you're complaining about league, you know, designations and, oh, my league's cooler and this league's worse. And I'm just, I feel like you're, you're losing sight of what the core value is. And the core value is just to have fun with friends, you know. Um, but luckily, over time, I think people have branched out. Um, and, you know, everyone... In general, I think it's a human nature where when something new comes along, it's, you know, people are apprehensive. Um, and, you know, it's understandable. I'm, I, there are plenty of things I'm probably the same way about. But um, if you can get past, if you can get through that and not stay, like, stuck simmering on that negativity and kind of push through, you're going to find a lot more fun things to do, a lot, you know, a lot more new experiences and even if it's not your cup of tea, that's totally okay. At least you have that in your back pocket as a memory of something that you tried, you know? Um, so I think that people branching out to uh, try these new things instead of just sticking with the mentality of, oh, mine's best, I don't need anything else, has been a big thing. But just really just time in general. Uh, as time has gone on, people have been more and more willing to, you know, they see that it sticks around, or they see that something sticks around, or this other community is here, and it's not going anywhere, so like, okay, well, I guess I'll give it a shot, you know, that kind of thing, so I think being, and also, and definitely not a, a thing to forget is making sure that those communities are open and welcome, you know, welcoming to people, <laughs> um, you know, and, and Making sure, like, especially even with your own folks, there are people in communities that I've been, you know, I've managed before that would be like, oh, our way is so much better and this, that, and the other. It's like, well, no, I mean, it's just different, you know? And so, like, being the person to actually step up and speak to them about that and be like, look, you know, let them do their thing. Let them have fun, you know? If they want to come and try our thing and have fun with us, that's great, too, you know? But 
kind of moderating your own folks as well to make sure that you have a nice welcoming environment and vice versa um you know i think goes a long way just one of those uh let people enjoy the things that they enjoy you don't have to uh <laughs> be in somebody else's cheerios exactly just you know as long as you're having fun doing what you're doing keep doing it in regards to sort of the community aspect of things again one thing i hear from people pretty consistently and i know certainly resonates with me a little bit is just sort of how hard it is to make friends as an adult and how have you sort of seen that play out in your life and and how does the involvement in a hobby in a community like axe throwing sort of mitigate some of that in terms of making friends as an adult in in like you mentioned with it's it's community building you know and axe throwing or really any other type of hobby that you find um it's a way to even if you wouldn't normally connect with somebody in your day-to-day -day life you have something to connect each other with um you know if it's axe throwing i can go to so many axe or knife throwing venues and stuff now and um you know even if that was this is somebody who you know, I may not invite over to Thanksgiving dinner or something like that necessarily, but this is someone where he or, you know, they and I can connect from something. And that's really all it takes is you can start building a bridge once you have a connection. Um, and having a community uh, that people can see uh, visibly, that's actually one of the reasons why leagues are so important. But uh, having uh, leagues is so important to because it, it shows people that community. Um, it, it lets them experience that because, you know, obviously with the, with the World Knife Throwing League or the World Axe Throwing League, there are tons of people I can connect to online to talk about this stuff all the time, but it's not until I get into a venue um, and see this group of people participating uh, with each other. And, you know, and another thing to keep in mind with that, too, is that it's a smaller part of a whole. You know, everyone has their own community that is part of a bigger community. So I can go, you know, I have like, there's a local league here I can go to and I can connect with those folks. But then when I go to a larger tournament, I can, some, I, you know, some of us might go to that tournament and then we are instantly connected to a bigger community that, even more than so than we had before. Um, and so making that initial um, connection with somebody in a mutual hobby or mutual interest um, is essentially kind of like the, the, key to unlocking the door of being able to have a plethora of new friends. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people have this sort of uh, definition. Everyone has their own definition of what, like, friendship constitutes. You know, there are some people I, I consider kind of like lifelong friends, but I only talk to them maybe once every two months or so, randomly. Um, but it's one of those, there are some of those people I, can, I know I can just call and be like, hey, you know, let's let's chat. You know, let's update and see see what happens. And you know, they're always happy to do it. If I uh, if I needed them to you know drop something and come rescue me from somewhere, you know, they would do it, even though we haven't spoken in two months. You know, but then there are other friends that you see and talk to every day, um, and those people might not be in the same type of thing. They may not be willing to drop everything to come and you know hang you know rescue you from some something you did. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... So, really, it, it, 
making friends as an adult, I think, is kind of uh, also a bit of like setting your own expectations. Uh, because not every single person you meet is going to be your best friend and, you know, but you might be surprised. I think the key is just being open to it. Yeah. And I think there's probably, it would probably be a fair statement to say you'd be more surprised than you think, uh, with who you might be friends with through a mutual connection somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where even just looking at the axe throwing community there, I don't know if you could pick a more eclectic group of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are people from so many different walks of life, uh, is particularly in axe and knife throwing. Um, you know, you'll get folks who are really into like the, the bushcraft and like the outdoors stuff, you know, and then you'll get folks who are like super into the kind of the hipster, um, you know, urban tattoo shop vibe and then you'll get like church groups you know it's like all sorts of different demographics from all over the place all come together to enjoy this one mutual thing um and that's one of the one of the really cool things about but particularly the the axe and knife throwing leagues themselves but you know there are lots of different communities out there that are like that um but it, it's it's very cool to see that within um the World Axe Throwing League and the World Knife Throwing League, for sure. You're pretty confident talking in front of audiences now. You <laughs> talked about, obviously, uh, being on the ESPN streams. Obviously, there's always a little bit of butterflies with that. Um, but you've been on ESPN broadcast for three or four years. No, it'll be five years now, right? Because 2018 was uh, yeah. the US Open. Yeah, um, five years. Anyways, and you've got a a Twitch stream that's slowly gathering a, a little bit of a loyal following there. Mm -hmm. um, have you sort of always felt comfortable being in that sort of setting or did it take you a while to work into that? I guess it kind of depends. Um, I, I guess I like thinking about it. I, I, um, I think I have been fairly comfortable in the setting. Um, it's, uh, I never really had much of an issue with it. Um, probably up until like teenage years. And then, um, I ha I struggled with it a little bit for a while. Um, but then I started doing some theater in like middle school, high school. Um, and even still that didn't really, I wouldn't necessarily say that helped. Um, like I got up in front of people and all that stuff, but, um, at the time I was also being homeschooled. So I kind of like started regressing a little bit in terms of like extroverted nature, but I would say, that what really kind of made me come out of my show was going to college, especially right after being homeschooled for so many years. It's like, whoa, everybody's here and, you know, everybody's doing stuff. Um, I think that kind of got me uh, into it a little bit. And I started doing, um, I joined a music fraternity because all my friends were in the music fraternity. And so I started learning how to sing. And so I did a bunch of performances with like uh, there's a uh, there's a local symphony that we did some performances with and um, things like that. And so I kind of got back into it. Um, but outside of that, I had not really been much of the limelight. All my hobbies are pretty much introverted. Like I'll just sit there and play video games uh, for a full weekend straight and not see a single other person and be perfectly happy with that. <laughs> um, but um, you know, but being in front of folks, I don't really like, I don't really think about it, I guess it's kind of, it, which I guess is a kind of a talent in itself in some ways. Um, I, I found that was the easiest thing 
my first ESPN broadcast, I was nervous. Like, I was just trying to not think about, uh, oh, a few hundred thousand people are seeing this. You know, no big deal, right? Um, but as time has gone on, I just don't think about it. I'm just like, I'm just more focused on the conversation I'm having with somebody. Um, whether it's on the Twitch stream and people are chatting in there, I'm just talking to them like I would just talk to you right now. Um, or, you know, depending on how many people listen to this, you know, I'm just doesn't really bother me i'm just talking to you so it's <laughs> fair enough tell me a little bit about uh your your homeschooling i didn't know you're homeschooled and uh it's something that i'm thinking more and more about yeah so um i was in um i moved around a few times growing up and um so i went to public school through like third fourth grade and then uh, went to a small private school um that it was very small, like between grades K through eight, uh, we had like 145 students total. Like my classroom was like, I think 10 people. Um, we, very, very small class sizes, combined grades in classes, um, which was interesting. Uh, it was definitely a different experience, but uh, then we moved fairly far, about an hour away, so we couldn't really justify go like my folks taking me to that school all the time in, in middle school. So, uh, since we left halfway through the year, we had to make up that year or basically get held back. And so my folks were like, well, why don't we just try homeschooling for the year and see what, for the rest of the year and we'll see what happens. Uh, so I'm not, it, it's different for every state in the U S I'm not sure how it is in, in Canada. Um, but in Virginia where I'm located, and grew up, uh, you can either do uh, one of two options for homeschooling. You can do um, just being taught by like your parents or someone else, and take your GED test, uh, you know, or just periodic tests every year to make sure that you're like learning enough. Um, or you can get a state-approved curriculum, and uh, you know the Virginia. Uh, education board has like a list of approved curriculums that you can do and basically they're like they're kind of like freelance schools almost uh, they'll usually have some uh, folks uh, at, at the time this was kind of before the internet was super big um, I was like one I think I was the first graduating high school class online um, but my, my siblings didn't want to do the online stuff they didn't like they weren't super computer savvy so they just got the books and would do the work from the books and send it literally through the mail out to California where the headquarters was for our <laughs> school. <laughs> um, it's uh, probably a lot more efficient these days, especially with the internet. Um, but uh, it was, you know, my, my folks, we did it for about a year, you know, that, to finish up that year, and they really liked it. I was not so much a fan because of the lack of social life. Um, but looking back on it now, I'm not, uh, super upset about it. Um, cause I learned a lot and it also gave me a lot more opportunities outside of school to do stuff. Um, I used to compete in martial arts, so I traveled up and down the East coast a bit doing that at the time. I had a job, um, I worked at a local comic and game shop. Um, and I probably would not have been able to do all those things things and also we traveled a good bit too um like overseas and stuff um and we were able to work on our schoolwork on these trips if we needed to um so with there's there's definitely some ups and downs with the homeschooling um 
overall, I would say I had more good experiences than bad. The, most of the bad comes from just being cooped up in, in the house as a teenager with your family for literal years. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair statement, I guess. <laughs> um, so you mentioned your role at the WATL is listed as the director of operations. Mm-hmm. It's not a role you would necessarily consider overly creative, and you went to school for graphic design and UX design. So talk to me a little bit about how having a creative mind has helped you in a job that maybe necessarily you wouldn't have expected it to. So I think um, one, of the, one of the benefits of kind of going from a creative space to traditionally a less creative space, I suppose, um, is the, the hard part is kind of being on lower levels of that to be honest, and kind of working your way up through it um, because you have a lot less freedom to do stuff. Um, I was lucky that I got in fairly early. Um, I was the, the first full-time employee um, for WATL, the World Axling League. Um, and so I had, you know, obviously I had to run everything past the, the boss, um, but I was given a lot of freedom to really do a lot with it. Um, and that was really, that was really kind of what fueled the early years. Um, but as time has gone on, uh, it has, uh, it's because there isn't, uh, the development has slowed, uh, because there is a, there are thousands of, uh, competitors now. Uh, there are hundreds of venues across the world that are members and there's a lot of upkeep that has to go with those there's a you know there is still room for innovation there always will be but in comparison to the massive amounts that there were in the early days you know it's it's not quite as much um so you kind of have to find other outlets for that creativity um one of the things uh that helped out a lot is being a little more hands-on with like social media um and community elements, uh, being able to host uh, like online social programs, you know, maybe uh, like International Axe Throwing Day, coming up with something that can get people engaged and is fun to do. Um, that sort of thing is always a treat um, for uh, for the World Axe Throwing League and being the director of operations, mostly what I do for that now is just kind of make sure that all the wheels are turning correctly and that there's no big major hiccups. Uh, and other than that, it's the staff that does a lot of kind of just the, the upkeep. Um, and that's another reason why I was moved uh, to be the commissioner of the World Knife Throwing League because we're, we basically started from scratch with it, just like I had started from scratch with the World Knife Throwing League. So I still get a lot of that creativity I'm allowed to do. Um, which I enjoy, uh, especially I get to, uh, I get to do a lot of TikToks and stuff, which is just dumb fun. So <laughs> <laughs> going down the, the rabbit hole on creativity for a minute, you're working on building a bit of a brand around, uh, painting hobby miniatures. Um, we talked a little bit before we started about you entering a couple competitions and, and winning some stuff. Do you have anything around your desk that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I, I started, uh, I've, I've been miniature painting since I was little. It's always been kind of like my hobby. Um, but I ended up, 
uh, kind of taking a break after co you know during college and after to focus on studies. Um, but this right here has been the thing that I've put kind of the most competitive work into at the moment. Um, not sure if I can get a good yeah screen on here or not. Let me change this lighting up a little bit. Maybe actually, nice. let's get this reflected a little bit. There <laughs> we go. That's a little better. Um, but yeah, it's a big. It's it's a fantasy thing. There's an orc. Uh, uh, matriarch riding a feathered T-Rex. Um, you know, it's just a miniature kit that I bought and painted. Um, I don't think that there you're going to be able to see too much detail in there, but this was a, clocked in at about 90 hours uh, worth of work. So, um, you know, it looks just, like a, it. Just, just a little bit of time. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, but uh, I took that out, as well as a few other things. That, it's actually funny because that's not the thing that won, even though that was like my competition piece that I was working really <laughs> hard on. <laughs> uh, I did, uh, I did get an honorable mention for that, which is honestly what I was aiming for. For it, this was my first competition I'd ever done um, formally, and so I was just hoping for an honorable mention for that, and I got it. So I consider that a success. You know, I, I, I hit the target I was looking for. Um, what I was surprised at, oh, thank you. Um, what I was surprised at was actually, uh, this isn't the full unit, but this is a, a unit of guys, um, that there's a, a, essentially like a regiment category. Yeah. And, uh, well, it's not going to focus up here, but that's okay. Um, but there's a, this unit of guys, basically there are about, uh, eight more of them. And that one first place in the unit category for the miniature painting competition, um, which I was, I brought just because I had them. I was not, in, I did not paint them with the intent on entering them into anything ever. Um, but it just happened to be at the right place at the right time, I think. So how important is it, do you think for everybody to at least have some sort of creative outlet? I'm clearly biased, <laughs> I feel, <laughs> but I think it's very important. And, you know, it's another thing of what, some people would define creativity differently than others, um, but I think it is important that everybody has a creative outlet. It doesn't necessarily have to be painting or drawing or theater or um, or you know photography or it doesn't have to be an artistic creative outlet necessarily. But I think it's kind of an inherent thing with hum most human beings, maybe not all, um, but I feel like most need some sort of creativity, something to do. Um, I feel like especially during kind of like 2020 and the pandemic when the lockdowns were happening. Um, we saw a lot of people kind of going like stir crazy a little bit, you know, getting a little cabin fever. Um, I was the opposite. I was in like total bliss. Like I was like, great. I can just paint for hours and hours and hours and I can just play video games and like, you know, um, but even still, the thing that was really cool is you saw so many people doing these really neat creative things despite that restriction, you know, and I think we actually saw a, a big boost in creativity and what a lot of people were doing because there were less outdoor things that people were, that they regularly did, like, you know, going and hanging out at a bar, which is not, you know, there's not anything inherently bad about doing that necessarily, but, um, you know, they were spending that time in other ways to be more creative, to keep themselves entertained and to enjoy life a little bit. I think that's kind of what it, boils down to is you know being a little bit creative helps you create ways to enjoy life a little more yeah and i think touching on what you talked about in terms of having a little bit of restriction bringing out more creativity i 
find myself. And, and one thing that I've heard from other people as well is that when you put some artistic restrictions on yourself, it can often lead to sort of a better outcome, whether it's a time restriction or a place restriction or just everybody wants to think outside the box. But sometimes if putting yourself in the box is actually where the biggest leaps in creativity come from. Absolutely. That's actually one of the kind of the founding principles of graphic design is uh, is kind of being a, being able to be creative despite restrictions in what you're designing. Um, and kind of the same thing, it, it's, I, I often think of the kind of the parallel between, uh, and I know that this may be a controversial opinion, but uh, between the original Star Wars trilogy and the, the uh, episodes one through three that came out in the, I, the 90s and early thousands, there was a definite shift in those two trilogies of, you know, kind of what was going on, the graphics, the, you know, because essentially... If you take a look, especially a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, because I have, I'm a big nerd, um, is that there were a lot of restrictions on the very first Star Wars movie. He had a very tight budget. Uh, you know, there were so many things that he wanted to do that he couldn't. If you take a look at a lot of the original uh, concept art for Star Wars, there is so much more that he would have done, and I'm not necessarily sure it would have been good. You know. Uh, so I think a lot of that restriction helped a bit. And that's not to say that restriction is always going to help creativity flourish, but everything in moderation, you know. Talking about restriction to creativity in a slightly different way, um, you've had a couple of, of TikToks go viral, pretty viral for, for uh, at least the niche you're in, for sure. No. Is it weird that you can record a 15-second video and it can be seen by hundreds of thousands of people with no recourse? Yeah, a little bit. Like, because you see the numbers go up, you know, on these videos and stuff. And you see people commenting and, and eventually stuff happens where, like, you'll see local people commenting. They're like, oh, I know where this is. And I'm like, who are you? You know, but then, you know, you think that it, especially, like, if you get a video that hits, like, one or two million or something, you're like heck yeah i'm i'm gonna i'm starting to pop off this is gonna be a this is gonna be a thing it's not you know <laughs> it's it's like you you know every little thing there are people who probably go viral uh fifteen to twenty times before anyone even recognizes who they are you know kind of thing you know or you know, goes viral um but it's uh it, it is weird because there's like the one point i it's it's almost like I don't know what to call it. I always just call it like fluff. Like, it, like it's just fluff. You know, it's it's a neat little tidbit. It's, uh, you know, oh yeah, I had 2 million people saw my stupid 15 second video I recorded. Um, but it mean, but that means literally nothing. I still have to go to my job. You know, I still have to, you know, uh, walk the dog. You know, I'm not going out there and buying mansions and stuff because of a, <laughs> because of a little video. Um, so it's it's weird because it's got it's like this weird amount of like hey people like this I'm funny you know I, people like what I'm doing this is great but on the other hand it literally doesn't change anything so it's kind of a weird duality of like should I am I I start I, actually I started kind of questioning it's like am I actually funny or just one thing just happened to be <laughs> it you know it's like it, especially when you like post the next video and it gets like 
a hundred views. And it's like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm not that funny, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, it's, it, especially after have like the the big viral video that I had go, it was it had literally nothing to do with anything except for just something I thought was funny, and um, it was uh, after after having that happen, I I had like a conversation in my own head. It was like, oh, should I like change my social media platform to focus on this, or should I you know keep doing what I want to do, or you know this that and the other? And in the end. I think what I landed on and what I what kind of keeps me a bit grounded, I suppose, uh, in terms of that is one. I barely get any of the views I used to, so that that keeps me pretty grounded. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, but the other thing is is to not worry about it. Is basically just you know as long as I think it's funny or as long as I am enjoying what I'm doing, then I'm going to keep doing it. And uh, if other people do too, then I'm I'm glad they're there for the ride. But if not, then. Uh, that's cool too. Yeah, I mean that definitely resonates with me. Uh, I've tried this a couple of different ways now, and I think it's one of those things where, if you're not doing something for yourself first, and you're trying to to force something too hard, you're gonna end up burning out or worse, hating yourself for it or something like that. Absolutely, it's it's again like I mentioned, uh, it's kind of setting expectations. Um, you know, if you like. You know, I, obviously, I think I'm a pretty funny guy. You know, I think I'm a pretty likable guy I'll agree. in some facet form. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean everybody's going to. You know, I not everyone's going to get my humor. I definitely know that. A lot of it's very niche. But, uh, but that's okay, you know, as long as I do and as long as the people can connect with it, then that's great. Um, if I try to set an expectation of, well, everyone's got to think this is funny or everyone's going to want to do this or, you know, if, if I set expectations like that, uh, the burnout will come so quickly because you'll just see that the, um, you'll see that there's just not the traction you expect. So we've talked about this a little bit and you mentioned it as well, but I also have this weird dichotomy of really sort of hating social media for everything that it does and everything that it is and and all of that but also realizing it that it's this ultra powerful tool to to reaching millions of people and there's really never been an easier time in the history of the world to build a brand so mm -hmm. what is your relationship with that sort of love hate aspect man you hit it so well <laughs> it's it, it is definitely a love hate relationship um i've i i think and it and it's kind of the internet as a whole um you know obviously you know kind of our generation was the first one that kind of grew up with the internet you know um and and i'm i'm leaning into the elder millennial cycle so like you know i i didn't really start doing internet stuff until you know probably like 13 or so, you know, with the old flash games and videos and stuff and things like that before YouTube and bef even before MySpace and all that. Um, and, but like, I remember kind of the shift of things and, and thinking back on it, you know, you have like Facebook that started coming out in like 2007, 2008 when it started getting popular. And, you know, that's when kind of social media was born before that you had like online forums and stuff, but it was fairly anonymous. Um, and nowadays, like you mentioned, it is so, so easy to build a brand. It's easy to build a narrative. 
um, about either yourself or someone else or something else. Um, and there's there's not only a love hate relationship, but I th- it's a double edged sword. I think in terms of like the internet, but particularly social media, is that there has never been a way to communicate with people quicker and with more people. Um, it's amazing because you can get your stuff out there um, if you really work at it. Um, you know, obviously it takes time. You can't just make one post and everything's going to go off. Uh, usually, unless there's something, unless you just hit a particular thing, um, that doesn't typically happen. But with consistent work, you can make that kind of happen. Um, but then, kind of the downside of that is it uh, it could get into uh, like people who don't really deserve that. <laughs> there are people who have platforms that probably should not have platforms. Um, it's it's it was earlier in in its history, less so now, but it is still applicable now. It is kind of the wild west in terms of like uh, information. Um, you know, it's there's there's a I would say overall there's more good than bad that has to do with social media and. Um, and, and the internet as as a whole, but the bad sucks so much. <laughs> it sometimes doesn't feel like there is more good than bad, but I would say overall, when I sit down and think about it, there is usually more good than bad. Um, I think kind of the issue and in, in really where a lot of the bad comes in is a lot to do with people's personal responsibility. Um, we, again, like you and I kind of grew up in the generation with the internet. We were told by our parents and stuff to, you know, not make friends with strangers, not, you know, and now we'll just, like, literally use the internet to order some stranger to come take us home. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, it's it's definitely, ter- it's, it's, it's um, changed a lot, um, and people are not, I think that the main issue is people don't keep up with it. Um, there are a lot of people who just use it as their own personal talking piece that thinks that's anonymous and they don't think about who's on the receiving end of that. Um, they don't recognize that there are people at the other end. Um, you know, they'll even, I, I, I can't think of anything in particular, thankfully anymore, but I remember, especially in the early days of some of the social media stuff I did, you know, my face was kind of out there for a bit. Um, still kind of is. Um, and I've been better about learning how to manage what goes out and what doesn't, um, and what I'm okay with people seeing and what I'm okay, not okay with them seeing kind of thing. I think that that's a really valuable skill that people should learn when using social media, um, but also um, they should learn the opposite of not just people seeing them, but what they see from people. Um, it's There are going to be ten idiots saying something stupid um that is without thought uh to every one person saying something genuine and good which sucks but uh keep making sure that you have you keep more in mind of the genuineness is is kind of a real big key for making sure that the love-hate relationship stays mainly love and not hate (laughs) i think for a lot of guys our age, we sort of grew up in what we now know as basically the birth of video games as we know it. And there's this sort of swirling narrative that I've found myself a part of in the last 
I don't know, call it a year or so of sort of cheap dopamine to mm. which uh, video games are probably a pretty significant contributor. How do you balance so- some of the nerdier aspects of your life with work, friends, relationship, family? Um, I know it was a big change for me a couple years back uh, mm-hmm. going from basically having no responsibilities to uh, <laughs> needing to be involved in somebody yeah. else's life. So, so uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, there's, it, it kind of, um, especially kind of coming from a lot of nerdy um, kind of communities and things, um, there's a, uh, I've seen some people kind of go down the rabbit hole of not being able to, I, I guess the, of not being able to moderate. And I think that kind of is the, the overall thing. It's just everything in moderation is kind of the key takeaway of, of what I'm going to talk about a little bit. Um, I, I um, specifically remember uh, a, a slightly edited memory now, um, but basically I was, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, we had played World of Warcraft a bit. Um, he was a senior in school, in the university, and I was a freshman. He was older than me. Um, and, you know, I'd been hanging out with him a lot, a, a ton, even before I went to school, but we ended up going to the same university. He was on the way out. I was on the way in. Um, and there was one night where we were just kind of walking and talking after, uh, I think it was like Anime Club or something. And uh, um, we just got on the conversation of, um, like, relationships and stuff. And he admitted to me that he had never even been kissed before. And um, I, it kind of like, it it kind of hit me a little bit. And I was like, huh. I mean, I had, obviously, at that point. But I wasn't that far off, you know. And I was like, if I don't moderate, if I, if I basically just, like, only focus on, like, these hobbies that I love and nothing else... I'm going to go down that route. Um, and I don't want that, you know. Um, so I basically just figured out a way to kind of moderate that. Like I would, you know, kind of not necessarily set a hard schedule, but be like, hey, I have this evening off. I can do the thing that I want to do. I can do my nerdy fun thing. Um, but then just make sure that I make time for other stuff too. Um, even if I don't necessarily want to, you know, more often than not, I would say that I'm happy I did it. Um, but usually, you know, I always have that kind of, like, fighting thing in the back of my head. It's like, hey, work on your hobbies. Like, do the stuff you want to do. Like, play a video game or, you know, paint something or, you know, just watch a bunch of YouTube mysteries, like, documentaries for six hours that have nothing to do with anything relevant in your life. Um, but I don't do that. <laughs> you know, all the time, you know, there's a time and a place. Um, and sometimes, you know, every once in a while there's a weekend where, um, I'll, I'll be like, okay, I don't have anything to do on this day. I'm just going to make sure I keep that day open and clear it and just like do the nerd thing. Like, uh, I think there was one, uh, like a year or so ago. Um, you know, I'd been working a bunch and I was getting kind of bogged down. I was like, I need a day just to like disconnect from the world for a bit and so I fired up one of my favorite games and I woke up you know I slept in woke up took a shower got some food sat down on the computer and did not 
do anything else except for, you know, eat essentially until the end of the day. And that is a luxury, and I recognize that. Um, and, uh, but because that is a lug, that should be a luxury, is, is, I guess is actually a better way to put that. That should be a luxury. That should not be, um, if you want to kind of be successful at multiple things, that should only be a luxury, basically. You, have, you should be able to moderate something like that. Whereas, as a kid, you know, obviously I would do that all the time. <laughs> and it would be super fun. And, you know, that day was particularly fun. But I don't need to do that all the time. And uh, I think that's the, uh, you know, there are other ways to get that, that, that cheap dopamine. Um, trying something new every once in a while, going out, you know, um, even if it's just like asking somebody, if it's like, hey, you want to go grab dinner with me? I'm just going to go and hang out. Um, it will be nice to have some company. You know, if it's for a friend, if it's, you know, significant other, a family member or something like that, that's always helpful. My, um, there was a while there uh, when things started opening back up from the pandemic where, like, every once in a while I would just reach out to my dad and be like, hey, do you want to get dinner? And he'd be like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So, you know, little things like that are really helpful. But uh, I, I would say even though I've been harping on moderating the fun stuff, that doesn't mean don't have any. Like, <laughs> definitely uh, make sure to moderate the the outs like the the things that are not hobbies also. Um, and but it's it's a constant work. It's a constant balance thing. Um, if I didn't put work into it, I could definitely fall back into just you know painting a miniature for hours and hours and hours and disconnecting from reality. Um, I'd love to fairly frequently but uh so it'd be really easy to do but you know just keeping in mind that it should be an occasional thing and that there are other important things going on too um that are just bigger than my ones necessarily so long long story short <laughs> what did being in a fraternity teach you about yourself that you don't think you would have learned otherwise um it really jump-started, and, and to, preface, <laughs> to preface a little bit, obviously we all know that there are some very unfortunate stereotypes about fraternities and that uh, stere some stereotypes do exist for a reason. Um, but thankfully, I joined a fairly nerdy fraternity, <laughs> um, and specifically one that was like a dry chapter of the fraternity, so specifically did not involve alcohol and anything, so it was, if that gives you any sort of uh, idea, I would say aside from that, it was fairly standard in terms of uh, fraternity experiences, you know, lots of uh, guys doing, you know, some dumb stuff here and there, but having a lot of fun and the camaraderie and stuff you get. Uh, but I would say that really helped uh, jumpstart uh, getting reacclimated to social life again, for, for one. Uh, because, again, I had gone from homeschooling to college. Um, and they, a lot of those guys just kind of took me in. And uh, it, it was like we mentioned earlier, where if you have that, even though all those guys, I don't talk to all of them anymore. I still talk to plenty of them on a daily basis um, from over a decade ago. Um, but uh, those guys, um, 
I may not have connected with outside of the fraternity much. Um, and it's not something I wouldn't hang out with every single person there all the time, but we had that small connection and I still consider them friends, even though, you know, we may not have hung out and, you know, uh, played video games together or something like that. Um, that's okay. We still had that, that bond and I can go back to that with them if I wanted to. Um, just like for the axe throwing or something, you know, uh, there'll be someone from a league I haven't talked to in forever and be like, Hey, you remember where that tournament we went to? It's like, yeah, that little, that little connector, um, kind of helps out a lot. But the other big thing I would say that the fraternity helped me out with a lot, um, was, I would say kind of a leadership thing. Uh, a, a bit of that. I ended up going to some of their national conventions that they had while I was an undergrad, and they were called leadership institutes. And it was, you know, it was a, a lot of seminars about how to be successful and all that stuff from people you'd never heard of who were probably successful, you think. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there ended up being a lot of good advice there. Um, it was, you know, you'd ha I had to kind of find and pick and choose but you know eventually um i brought a lot of that back to the fraternity and it let me experiment before getting out into the world as like an adult with taking on leadership positions and also like just kind of working towards something i wanted to work towards um for example uh there was one thing uh, we were really, when I, when I was joining the fraternity, I, we did a fundraiser and it was like a chili thing where we cooked a big batch of chili and we sold it for two bucks a bowl to fundraise so we could basically pay our dues and like get fun little fraternity trinkets and stuff to give to, uh, our big brothers and all that stuff. Um, this is before we, I had even gotten in. We did this as like a pledge class basically. Um, and it ended up being really successful. We ended up we asked, um, I think we asked Walmart if they would donate something, and they gave us a $75 gift card, which pretty much paid everything. And we ended up making almost $200 off of Chili. Um, so we basically just netted 200 bucks out of, you know, by putting in a few days' worth of work. And uh, we were able to cover everybody's uh, entrance dues and all that stuff, which was really cool. Um, but at the same time, when I went to the Leadership Institute, uh, one of the guys was talking about how um, uh, basically being more efficient. Uh, and so one of the things he mentioned was like, how many of you all run fundraisers? And ton most everybody raised their hands. And it's like, okay, um, you know, what's the most successful fundraiser you raised? And so that one for us was the most successful one. We had about 10 guys. We raised 200 bucks. We probably put in we had at least two people manning the, the chili station for four hours a day for about a week. Um, you know, so that's, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of manpower for, you know, 200 bucks. And so he was like, what if you all just worked minimum wage at a job for that same amount of time? How much money would you have? And when he did the math, it was like, oh, well, we would probably have like $1,000 at least. He's like, well, why don't you just donate that to the fraternity instead? You know, <laughs> it was like when when you started, and, and that was one of the key memories for the fraternity for me was like, holy crap, that's so much more efficient. Why don't we just add that little extra bit? Like if every single person in our chapter of the fraternity worked an extra hour a semester at their job and just donated that to the fraternity, we would have 
like enough money that we could run a full-on fun event, you know, instead of working our asses off to scrape together chili or sandwiches for people or something and hopefully make a few hundred bucks <laughs> after we put days of work with dozens of guys doing the work <laughs> for it. It's like when you put it into that perspective, it, it that kind of just changed my whole philosophy on like w- what work is and like how basically working kind of like smarter not harder and leading people to come to those same conclusions i guess so that that was probably the biggest takeaway i got from being in a fraternity is is working smarter talking about leadership in a slightly different but similar way um something else that i've been thinking on recently is is a little bit of lack of effective male role models which has mm-hmm. sort of led me a little bit in part to what I'm doing now with this project. Um, but sort of the almost destruction of the nuclear family, whether there's like less male teachers or community leaders or the, the awesome uncle that you had as a kid or, or even sort of a little bit of the, the demonization of, of guys in general right now. Um, talk to me about how your brothers sort of helped you, from that aspect as well. Yeah, so that's actually um, that's a that's a that's a great point to to be in on. Um, I, I, it's interesting too. I was just talking um, the other day that more often than not, I would say like in a lot of my friends and like throughout most of my life, I would have like a few best friends who were guys, but then all the rest uh, like less uh, more like not best friends typically, but uh, but more friends were women than men more uh, fairly frequently throughout my life until I got into the fraternity. Uh, and then throughout my college life, all my best friends were just this giant group of like 30 other guys. Um, and so it was kind of a, a big shift for me. Um, and, you know, they're all very, very different. So there are some who I grew to really admire and respect. And, you know, there are also faculty as well that were in that. Um and then there were some where I was like, okay, well, this is just another, you know, this is, this is another guy, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, um, it, I think the, the key thing to remember, especially when it comes to like guys and role models is, um, with being, well, it, it's kind of hard to say as as a guy myself, you know. <laughs> I, I suppose it's uh, we're probably looking for something different. Um, there's, I, I think, what I would say is is like with every single guy that I was in with a the fraternity, there were there were good parts and there were bad parts. I mean, not necessarily bad. There are parts I may not have agreed with, or there are parts that I did agree with in in some people's philosophies, or you know. Um, not luckily not i didn't disagree with many of the actions because we're a fairly clean-cut crew um but uh you know there i think it's still important to really um not idealize too much um everybody is human you know regardless and no one's going to be the perfect role model but there will be people that do things that are worthy of being a role model. Um, it's kind of the same thing even in terms of like fantasy elements like Superman. 
um, or, or um, you know, in any sort of like fictional story, like, like Lord of the Rings or something. Um, there are lots of guys that you can look to uh, in terms of uh, fictional or real, um, but you have to keep in mind they're they're people. You know, they they are not infallible. I think a lot of people, when they look for role models, they look for someone who is basically infallible. And, again, it's a, it's the exact same thing of setting expectations. If you expect that someone is going to be infallible and they turn out not to be, that's world-shattering. Um, you know, and you shouldn't set yourself up for that. Um, one person I like to point to as probably, at, at least on a public-facing way as borderline infallible would be like Mr. Rogers. Doesn't necessarily mean he was. I'm sure that there's stuff that, um, you know, and and probably he'd be one of the first ones to admit it. He's not been a perfect person forever or anything like that. But what we've seen uh, throughout, well, what most people would probably agree with, uh, at least, especially in hindsight now with Mr. Rogers, is everything that we've seen, lots of amazing values, lots of good... Um, wholesome lessons to be learned from this man uh, who did not only uh, you know sort of preach these things but lived a lot of them but he was still a person you know he wasn't this like he wasn't this ethereal being of infallibility um, so what I would say to anybody who's looking for Real, male role models or anything like that in particular is find elements of people uh, that are worthy of being followed. Um, and never, <laughs> never ever <laughs> follow anyone's advice who says they have all the answers because no one does. <laughs> I, I always feel like the people who are the most sure of themselves are usually the most wrong. <laughs> I say that because I'm unsure of that. <laughs> I think that's a pretty fair statement, man. I also feel like that's a pretty, pretty good place to wrap things up. It's, it's an awesome insight. And, uh, I think the, the call out to Mr. Rogers is one that we can all hope to aspire to. Right. So if uh, people wanted to connect with you or, or check out your stuff, where should they go? Uh, a lot of the goings-on uh, these days seems to be uh, with the World Knife Throwing League professionally. Um, if you really want to get into the nerdy stuff, you can find uh, all the social medias as Walter's Workshop, all one word. Um, otherwise, check out the World Knife Throwing League and the World Axe Throwing League social medias and on ESPN. And those will be the places where you can find me. Perfect, man. Thanks for, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it.